to the Military Psychology Podcast Network, the Society for Military Psychology, Division 19 of the American Psychological Association, is producing several series applying psychological principles in military settings. We'll feature topics including diversity, consulting, behavioral health in the military and specialty areas, including operational aviation psychology. We address the question, what is military psychology? And answer it a number of ways. Follow the Society for Military Psychology at www.militarypsych.org. This episode is brought to you by Grid Energy Solutions, LLC, striving to enhance the resiliency and network recovery capabilities of the nation's electric power grid. Grid Energy's mission is to facilitate the restoration of the American electric power grid in the event of catastrophic failures resulting from natural events or human actions. For more information, please inquire at contact at grid-energy.com. Dr. Dixon, thank you so much for joining us. It's such a pleasure to have you. For our audience, Dr. Dixon is a clinical psychologist who owns her own private practice. She's also been teaching at the Florida School of Professional Psychology. She's a national speaker and she's an advocate for diversity. Dr. Dixon, welcome and thank you for coming on our podcast to share your expertise in this area. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So today's episode, we want to focus on white privilege and what that means and how people can acknowledge or come to understand that term a little bit better. Mm-hmm. So can you start off by telling us what white privilege is? Certainly, and I'm, I'm happy to hear that you are having this podcast and talking about white privilege because I think that it's a term that often is misunderstood, which then results in individuals becoming defensive because they hear the word privilege. And so if they've had any sort of challenge in their life and they hear the word privilege, there's a defense that comes up. But what people need to understand when it comes to the defining nature of what white privilege is, it's speaking about societal privileges that individuals receive purely off of the color of their skin. And in American society, the the facts of the matter is, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, is that we live in a world where there is systemic racism. And because of that systemic racism, there's some that benefit without any work, without any effort, purely off of the race and the color of their skin. And so white privilege isn't about anything regarding political, economic. It's about purely race, purely the the skin tone, color of one skin. And again, like I said, I think it's misconstrued sometimes where individuals think that if they grew up in a lower socioeconomic status and they had these challenges and they're white, they're like, you can't tell me I had privilege when I struggle throughout my childhood because my family didn't have much of anything. But it's this matter of even when all things are equal, so two individuals, let's say the exact same income, one's black, one's white, the individual who's white navigates through life in a way where yes, even though they may have a low socioeconomic status, they still have certain barriers removed for them where the person of color has to run through extra obstacles. One of the examples that comes to mind is the Air Force recently did a study about the disparity between disciplinary actions and Mm -hmm. found that there is a significant disparity between white airmen 
and airmen of color mm -hmm. as far as how disciplinary actions were handled. And there could be a set standard, but that white airman might get a, a pass or more of a slap on the wrist where that airman of color will get the letter of the law and the full extent to what that punishment could hold and entail. That's a perfect example. And, and my guess is the study that you read shows that that's true even when they're in equal ranking. So Correct. no matter what the ranking is, that there's still this disparity that exists between what the consequences are. And quite frankly, that's seen in every single institutional structure that exists within the United States, whether it's education, whether it's the military, whether it's healthcare, all of it, whether it's the judicial system, all of it, you see this disparity where those of lighter skin, those who are white, receive this benefit, this social advantage that, the, that people of color don't get. One other example that comes to mind offhand is our promotion systems. And mm -hmm. a big news story right now for the military is, is that they are going to, for the army, they're going to take off our DA photos. So mm -hmm. when we go before a board for officers, there's our photo that's in our uniform that is mm -hmm. on kind of our, our record, what's called mm -hmm. our, our ORB, officer yeah. record brief. And they're taking that off. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts as far as the impact of that picture being taken off? I think it's a start. I think that it, it well, I have lots of thoughts. I'm trying to figure out which one to say first. So my first thought is um, it's a start because it's recognition of knowing that there are these implicit biases that occur that then cause people to not be promoted in the way that they should or not receive the benefits that they, they deserve. And it's, it's purely off of that implicit bias that's based on um, one's race. So that's my first thought. So it's a start. My second thought is regarding some of what the other literature says when it comes to two individuals can have this exact same uh, resume. But if one resume has a black sounding um, or ethnic sounding name, then that person will not receive the job, but the individual that has a more European white sounding name will receive the job. And so removing the photographs is a start. However, discrimination can still occur when it comes to a person's name. And again, the, the start, it's a start of a conversation, which is encouraging. Mm -hmm. um, but just a reminder, we, we do have so much more to do and yeah. there is so much more learning and growing to do as we reshape our institutions and how we do things as the Department of Defense, as the various branches start to look, that sounds like a good place to start is, yeah. is to say, how are these implicit biases affecting and impacting our ranks? Right. Well, and the pure acknowledgement that they are affecting, like the fact that they're saying, you know what, when we're looking around and we're seeing this disparity, we, we used to have a photograph that went along with people's submissions. They're seeing, okay, this disparity suggests that there's got to be some sort of bias that's happening. And so the fact that there's the acknowledgement that the bias is there, now it can be addressed. So it's like, let's start by removing the photographs. And again, that is an awesome beginning to kind of shifting the narrative of how, you know, how rankings work. One of the other topics that come up when we think about white privilege in the military is this idea of grooming standards and the default is a white standard. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the idea that um, particularly for women of color and their hair, 
that the mm -hmm. standards that are in regulations don't quite match what would be realistically expected. For so that is an awesome example also of white privilege because people have to really take a step back and think about what that means. It's saying if your hair looks a certain way, your natural born hair looks a certain way and it doesn't meet our standards, then you don't fit, you don't belong. And so it becomes this figure out a way to make it look more European or you can't fit in the military. And you know, we're seeing that across the board too in schools. And there's a state, I believe California is the state that came up with a um, law where you can't discriminate against somebody's hair. But the fact that we need a law that you can't discriminate against somebody's hair, that points out that white privilege is something that's been existing in our society since you know the birth of this nation. And not the birth of this nation in terms of when it actually existed, but when it was founded. So thinking about the, the various privileges, can you give us some other examples where white privilege exists in society and how it might impact people of color, particularly in the military? Yeah. So even in the sense, like there's a lot of research that shows the, the gender differences. That So we know a lot about what the research says in regards to males versus females and the experiences that they have. But when it comes to the military and privilege, with specifically people of color and I'll, I'll go specific as black individuals, like you've already pointed out that there's disparities in terms of rankings, in terms of advancement, in terms of treatment, in terms of consequences. Those disparities exist where on every account, individuals who are people of color are going to end up getting the harsher treatment. They're going to be have a harder road and more obstacles to overcome in, in order to advance. And even when it comes to the respect piece in, in rankings, there's still the challenge there. Some of the individuals that I've seen in therapy, they've discussed having individuals who are at a lower ranking be disrespectful to them out of biases that exist because of the color of their skin. And so there's still even more challenges where often there's this feeling of having more to, to prove in order to get the respect that they deserve. And then again, when that respect isn't given, the consequences that should be there aren't being implemented. So giving a junior soldier kind of a pass if they're being disrespectful to a senior military member or a, a leader a who's a person mm -hmm. of color. Yep, and it and gets dismissed as if it's sort of like, well, you know, let's give this person pass. They didn't mean it that way. It gets dismissed. And that, from, from my experience, that really leaves that leader and that person of color feeling um, dismissed, invalidated, not appreciated, not respected. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes I hear people saying, I feel like I have to do 120% just to keep my head above water. Yeah. And yeah. oftentimes I, I even hear, you know, mentors telling junior soldiers, hey, because you're a person of color, you need to do better. You need to do Work more. Twice you, as hard twice as hard, you need to keep in line. You can't even make a small mistake. That would be expected, especially in junior ranks. Like we expect there is a developmental appropriate level of you know, not showing up to PT, okay, yep, and there's consequences, right? Mm -hmm. There's a standard in the military and we have to keep those standards for good order and discipline for readiness. Absolutely. But but to think that the kind of anxiety that I can't be late because if I, I do, 
the hammer is really going to come down and they see that disparity and that unequal punishment given out. And that really causes distress and strain on the units. It does because it's hard enough because you got to look at it like the, the, the military in and of itself is a culture. And so part of what I've learned and I've, I've learned very much as somebody who's not in the culture, I know very much that I'm an outsider looking in. But what I've learned from individuals who are within the culture is that being a person of color in the military, you have military culture and then you have a culture within the culture, which is black military culture, a person of color military culture. Because there's a different level of support and validation that's needed among persons of color because they're experiencing things that those who have white privilege have no idea about. They have no understanding of the additional stress of being a person of color and then having this family of, of in a sense, but a family where certain individuals have privilege or the, the favorite child. And so, you know, I can't do what you're doing because the consequences for me are going to be far more severe than they would be for you. And what that means for them and their experience of being in a culture that also puts them on the fringes. No, that, that's a great example because oftentimes I hear uh, leaders and soldiers talk about, well, I only see green. <laughs> and wouldn't that be great if that were true? Mm -hmm. But this idea that we are colorblind um, mm -hmm. really hampers our ability to learn and grow and understand what someone else's experience is. And unfortunately, we don't just live and operate within a military community and people come in with so many different experiences and a range of experiences mm -hmm. of racism, mm -hmm. of overt acts of racism, of those covert or those implicit biases and the level of anxiety, depression, frustration, anger mm -hmm. that that can cause is really dismissed of, oh, you're being too sensitive. You're making a big deal out of it. You're playing the race card. And you've got to think about this piece of, so these are individuals like that, that idea of I only see green and that would be great. And like I said, the military has a culture within itself, like is a culture. So there's, there's a camaraderie and there's a family and a fellowship that, that is there. And then and that's undeniable, but you've got to think that those that serve, they're serving for a country that isn't always embracing of them in terms of a person of color, it's not always embracing of them. So it's like I'm serving for a country that is rightfully partially mine. This is my my home. And yet I'm still made to feel like an outsider in the home that I'm willing to fight for. And so you've got to think about the psychological impact on a person of color who's fighting for the United States and yet doesn't get the same respect as their Caucasian brother or sister who's also fought. They don't get that same level of respect. They don't get that same level of opportunity. And mind you, this isn't anything new. This is historically within our society, within American society. And there's a quote that I say over and over again from the Daryl Wing Sue book that says, we're all products and participants in a society that's embedded with racist ideology. And if you look throughout the years in terms of military culture, individuals would have been deployed. And then when they come back over, those that are persons of color were not respected in the same way as the white men and women that they served next to. 
even thinking about being here in Hawaii and, and Pearl Harbor and thinking about people of color that served during that time and just what some of the, the laws and you know, the separate but equal and thinking about, you know, Brown versus Board of Education hadn't mm-hmm. even happened at that time yet. <laughs> yep. So really thinking about where we were at and, and the contributions mm-hmm. that people of color have made to our military, I mm-hmm. often get overlooked. And, yeah. and people get frustrated. Well, why, why do we have to acknowledge this? And we should just, it should be American culture. Um, but if we're not recognizing and it hasn't been recognized, that we haven't always given the due respect to soldiers who have served that are people of color, then we're not feeling as a nation. And I encourage like everyone to, just for a context of understanding, because it's a quick movie, well, not quick, but it's a movie, Glory, and it is based on a true story. And it does represent this piece of when black individuals are allowed to fight you know, for their country, but they're still mistreated in the military. They're still looked down upon as inferior. And that was them fighting for their own freedom. So there, there's a historical presence that has led to what we're all in, which is systemic racism, systemic oppression. And it has its consequences that we're still trying to recover from in the military. And that's, again, if you look at the statistics in, in terms of just race, and what people's rankings are and who are the highest ranked, there's going to be a disparity that exists. And that, again, just speaks to years upon years of white privilege and systemic racism at work. One of the things that is encouraging for me as a military psychologist is Secretary of Defense Mark Esper recently sent out a memo talking about the plan to go forward for the Department of Defense as far as recognizing there are implicit bias, recognizing the impact of racism within our ranks and a plan to move forward to address it. What are some resources that you would recommend for military psychologists and for leaders to to look into, to get exposure to, to help facilitate that movement? Mm -hmm. I think part of it, it all starts with a a personal journey of self-awareness. And it's so fascinating to me because I I was talking to one of my mentors and an individual who's widely known when it comes to racial identity development. And I was talking to him about implicit bias. And he was explaining how his perception is he's never really discussed, um, and his name is Dr. William Cross, he's never really discussed the unconscious part of racism. And he said, because he doesn't know how he feels about shifting around, you know, people's unconscious and if that's even possible. And, And it got me thinking, and I'm still working out my thoughts on what that all means. But I do believe that we as individuals can't necessarily impact one another's unconscious biases, but we can be responsible for ourselves. And so when you're asking the personal resources, I think every individual can, is, needs to put the accountability on themselves to kind of figure out what are my biases? What are my blind spots? What is the culture that I grew up in, in terms of what's my cultural autobiography? What was I taught from my parents about other people? What, what is my belief system? Because when people first have that honest look at themselves, 
they can then turn it outward to recognize how it affects the way that they engage or interact with the society around them. And so I think that some resources to then expand, you know, from self-awareness to things that are going out going on in the world. You know, the White Fragility book is amazing in terms of understanding that defensiveness that comes when people hear the word white privilege. Uh, there's a great book by Debbie Irving called Waking Up White. And I, I love that book because it discusses the historical nature of how we got to be where we are today. And even talking about the redlining that occurred that has caused like some of the housing issues that we see and how when our military came back, there were these benefits to allow military families to gain housing, but those benefits were often denied or blocked from um, for individuals who are Black. So I think, you know, those are two books that I highly recommend when it comes to just understanding some aspects about white privilege. Books that I encourage people to read that have to do more so with just kind of understanding or giving a context of understanding the experience of being Black in America is my favorite Between the World and Me. And that's by Coates. And he's an author where basically he's writing a letter to his son. And this letter to his son became a book. And it does explain just some of the injustices that we see. So those are our three books that I would tell people to start with just to give them a foundational understanding. Thank you so much. Those are some great resources. A couple of them I'm familiar with, a couple of them I'm looking forward to, to look into. So oh, there's one other resource and this one's a quick and easy one. Sorry. Oh, no, and thank that, you. That's Peggy McIntosh's White Privilege Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack because that in and of itself just gives this list of privileges that white individuals have. And then it takes people away from understanding privilege in the context of like socioeconomic status and instead and just in the context of not having to face certain obstacles that those who are people of color do face. Thank you. But yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I have not looked into that one yet. So <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. As you were talking about the redlining, mm -hmm. that is another issue that often comes up. If we look at the demographics across the military, thinking about white privilege, thinking about those barriers, part of how jobs are picked, and in the Army, we call it your MOS training, it is based on your ASVAB scores. And you know that's a big part of where you know psychology got their start in assessment is through the military, and and that's kind of you know the foundation of what we do and what really sets us apart as a profession is that assessment piece. Mm -hmm. But thinking about the experience and the barriers you were talking about because of where people were allowed to live and had access to, mm -hmm. as far as what were those barriers, that also impacts education. Yes. Mm -hmm. It's all a domino effect. And so even when we're looking at like the educational piece, there are so many biases that exist there in terms of for behavioral labels, for example. There's often children who, who are persons of color who might be labeled as having a behavioral problem when really they might have a learning disability. And some of those labels get, for people of color, end up being the harsher labels versus oh, let me attempt a different teaching method because there's teacher bias that, you know, has been well-researched where especially for black boys, 
they tend to be often put in the detention rooms. And mind you, when they're put in the detention rooms and not given the work that would challenge them to what their full academic abilities are, that's holding them back. And then when you're looking at redlining in terms of where people live and then education and educational resources, a lot of times persons of color are are being put in schools where they're not getting the same resources as though their white counterparts. And so there's this segregation that's not enforced per se, but that exists through systemic racism that then causes black children to be set up for failure really because they're not getting the same the same access to the same resources. That's what separate but equal was all about is that the the resources that that were given were equal. And unfortunately, that still remains true to this day. And when I was talking about the teacher bias piece, there there's teacher bias in terms of being quicker to reprimand a child who's a person of color versus a white child and reprimand in harsher ways to being harsher in their grading, to not being advocates for children who are persons of color. And then there's the financial issue of often a lot of the teachers in in certain school districts don't then live in the school district. So they're coming, they're teaching, they're gaining an income from that district, but their tax dollars are going to their home, which is another district where they have more resources. Um, So it's a domino effect. And that really does translate to then what we see in our demographics as far as different jobs. Thinking about aviation mm-hmm. compared to some of the support MOSs like, you know, in, in the motor pool or in the culinary specialists, water treatment specialists, supply, um, any of those support MOSs. And then looking at some of the, the different MOSs like aviation that are more predominantly white. Mm-hmm. Well, it becomes the question that. of where, who's being encouraged to go down what path. So that presents another opportunity for us as psychologists to be advocates. So what are some actions that we could take to help advocate for persons of color, for our uh, airmen or soldiers or sailors of color? I do think that, you know, again, we as psychologists do play our role and we do play an important role when it comes to bridging awareness. And so I think that one of the things that we can start doing is psychoeducation and informing people of the disparities that exist. Because again, awareness is key in order for there to be any change. And so once there's that psychoeducation of, okay, statistically speaking, this is what we see. This is a disparity that exists. This disparity exists because of something called systemic racism. This is what systemic racism is. It's in every single institutional structure that exists within the United States, including the military. And then you show the different rankings. And then as psychologists, we've got to make sure we play a role in, you know, me as a person of color, talking with other individuals who are in the military, who are people of color, you as a person that's not of color, being an ally and opening the room and the door for a person of color to to discuss and express what their experience has been. Because this whole we see green, it sounds nice and it would be nice, but it's not a reality. 
It's not a reality in terms of the path that led that person to enter into the military in the first place. It's not a reality in terms of what the individual's experience is in the military as well. So I think that part of it has to do with, as psychologists, being willing to have the conversations that aren't being had. So really being out there, one, being aware of what Mm -hmm. white privilege is, understanding Mm -hmm. the impacts of systemic racism, and understanding our role and how we can advocate and educate leaders, our patients sometimes, Mm -hmm. and even each other. Yes. Because there, there is a a wide gap as far as training experiences, exposure to diversity, education, mm-hmm. and understanding of the, the impacts of mm-hmm. diversity on yeah. clinical care and, and someone's developmental process. Yeah. And realizing this piece of like, like you said, I think everyone means well when they say things like I'm colorblind or all I see is green. They mean well, because what they're trying to say ultimately is I hold you in equal standing. But that circles me back around to that quote, we're all products and participants in a society that's embedded with racist ideology. And because we live in a society that has that ideology, we can't just see green. We can't just be colorblind. We have to see the impacts that color has had. And that's the only way that we can then shift what has been broken in our society, really. Well, Dr. Dixon, thank you so much for taking the time to share your expertise and the resources that you provided for our listeners. And we look forward to delving in and and expanding our understanding and knowledge. For our listeners, please check out the show notes. We'll have those resources listed for you and links to access them. And Dr. Dixon, thank you again for joining us and thank you for your time. Thank you again for having me. It's an important topic and I love being a part of it. To our listeners, have a great day. We hope to see you next time or to have you listen in next time on our episode where we discuss the impact of male mentorship for female leaderships and to empower women in leadership roles. Thank you again, Dr. Dixon. Take care.